This is the Snug Podcast. In this episode, unveiling the potential of AI in general practice. So you take a complex topic and say, right, see this topic, explain it like I'm five. And then you get a very simplified uh, thing and say, all right, okay, explain it like I'm 10, explain it like I'm 15. And you kind of crank it up. Step with great care when using this in your actual practice for any number of different reasons. But to understand what's coming down the line, I think, yeah, get out there and have a go. Hello and welcome to another Snug Podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we are the Scottish National Users Group and we support general practices in Scotland on their endless quest to deliver healthcare to the population and to get the best use out of their GP IT systems and and also technology in general. I'm Andrew McElhinney, I'm a GP and a member of Snug. Now we have a really topical topic and a particularly good conversation today. Think back to the end of last year, as we were all run off our feet, dealing with a massive outbreak of viral infections, flu, strep A, and, oh yes, COVID. And an exciting new technology was released in the midst of all of this. And it made all the main news stations. Okay, you want to learn about the future? It's the future is now, because this morning, a new artificial intelligence tool known as ChatGPT It is a powerful new technology with extraordinary potential, but there are also warnings about the huge risk of misuse. Intriguing, certainly, and a lot of AI analysts say it's as revolutionary as the internet, but some say it's a threat to society. But one thing is for sure, it's sparking interest among everyone from top CEOs to students. Chat GPT, maybe you've heard of it. If you haven't, then get ready, because this promises to be the viral sensation that could completely reset how we do things. It is the embryonic version of online artificial intelligence, the early frontrunner that reportedly has just secured a $10 billion shot in the arm from Microsoft. It is then the new frontier for the tech giants. The initials GPT stand for Generative Pre-Trained Transformers. It automatically answers questions based on written prompts. You do not need to be a techie to use this. It is user-friendly. It puts AI in the hands of the masses. ChatGPT has the potential to revolutionize the way we interact with computers. With its ability to understand and generate natural language, it could be used in a range of applications, from customer service, to language translation, to personal assistance, to content generation. It's an exciting development in the world of artificial intelligence and one with the potential to change the way we live and work. Since the start of the year, AI developments have been thick and fast, and there is now a serious struggle between all the major tech companies to gain control over how best to integrate AI with their products. This week, I spoke to Dr. Keith Grimes, whom long-term listeners may remember from a very early Snug podcast. Keith is a GP, and he worked with Babylon Healthcare as a director of clinical innovation until last December. Now he has his own consultancy in digital health and clinical product management. He's been a pioneer in the use of virtual reality and artificial intelligence in healthcare. So whether or not you've used ChatGPT yet or any of the other new AI tools, settle in for a really 
good exploration of some of the possibilities and also some of the many questions being raised of the potential for using AI in general practice. So I'm, I'm really delighted to welcome uh, Dr. Keith Grimes to join us today. It's a pleasure to speak again. Uh, I think it's been over four years now since we first spoke on uh, one of the very first Snug podcasts. And obviously we didn't realise then that a global pandemic was imminent. Um, how has life treated you since then? Yeah, well, actually, pretty well, all things considered. I think, uh, you know, everyone will have their own little stories about that. But um, since I last spoke to you, um, I have worked out and then left uh, Babylon uh, late last year. Babylon's having its own issues, which is maybe a discussion for another time. But in that time when uh, the sun was shining a little bit more, yeah, worked uh, a little bit as a sort of clinician through the, the pandemic, principally on the vaccination side. But much of my work has been in the world of digital health and innovation. So worked within Babylon, worked on the symptom checker, um, sort of direct to consumer blood tests to do with COVID, all, all sorts of uh, work within Babylon to help manage a clinician's team doing innovative work and getting it implemented, which was great fun and really impactful. And then latterly worked more specifically in artificial intelligence as a product manager and worked on risk prediction tools, specifically predicting the likelihood of people going into hospital. And I left Babylon December last year and since then have started up my own digital health and innovation consultancy. And uh, now I'm a free bird able to speak to who I want and do what I like, which I'm loving. <laughs> well, it's great. It's great to have a chat today. I really wanted to talk today about what I think has been a pretty amazing uh, advance in technology in the past six months or so in the shape of chat GPT. Uh, and I guess there's been a variety of other AI related developments. So I, I suppose there's been a few moments in the past 30 years when developments in technology have just made me stop and go, wow, you know, I remember using a web browser for the first time or discovering you could talk to or play a game with somebody on another continent. Then there was Napster and the ability to download songs out of thin air, which as a, a music fan was a gift from Santa Claus. And, and then smartphones were game changing. So, so I felt when using ChatGPT for the first time, this was another sort of wow moment, if you like. I mean, did you feel like that? Oh yeah, absolutely. And and it's not as if I haven't been really immersed in the world of artificial intelligence for many years now, particularly in the clinical space. So I suppose I should have been a little bit better prepared for when it came out as well. And I suppose my moment for the sort of wow moment came from using chat GPT when it came out at the end of November 2022. I'd been really impressed with the work they'd done with what was called generative AI with images uh, beforehand and seeing the sort of the, the pace with which things happened. But when it started to happen with that chat interface, uh, you're right, it was like a, a sudden moment of like, holy moly, what's this? And you, you started using it and doing lots of little daft things like, you know, getting it to tell limericks in the style of Shakespeare or whatever it was. But, but very, very quickly, you got a sense of a real sort of depth of capabilities underneath it. And then thereafter, it's just been announcement after announcement after announcement, which has been even for a person that kind of loves this sort of stuff has been a bit a bit fatiguing <laughs> trying to keep up with it. So uh, I'm with you. It's been a transformative thing. And so I've spent a lot of my time trying to wrap my head around it and say, well, this is all really exciting stuff, but like genuinely, how can we use it safely? So yeah, I absolutely agree. It's a, it's a big change. And I guess from a medical and specifically general practice point of view, I mean, I, I knew you'd be all over this because uh, I know mm. you, you, you tweet about it regularly. And uh, I also saw a video chat you had with Dr. Gandalf. Yeah. Um, 
who's got a great YouTube channel on, on e-learning for GPs. And in that, you were able to demonstrate and outline some of the new ways that ChatGPT can be useful now for GPs. And I will link to that in the, in the episode notes. But yeah, I just wondered if you could, I guess, first of all, briefly explain what is happening when we interact with ChatGPT and, and also maybe what you think a couple of the most potentially useful aspects are going to be for GPs? Well, very happy to. And so um, people listening to this may have a good idea of what GPT is. Uh, GPT stands for Generative Pre-trained Transformer. And uh, if you break it down, generative, it, it generates output. It takes input and it generates novel output. Pre-trained is a model, what we call a base or a foundation model. And transformer is the, the architecture, the sort, of the, the, the sort of technical aspects behind it as well. And uh, chat GPT is uh, one version of it. What it is is a large language model. It was version 3.5, version 3 and slightly iterated on uh, in a chat format. And yes, you could access it, access it by a website. And there's a number of different large language models with a chat interface on front of them right now. So there's also BARD, uh, which Google has now released more widely, um, which integrates search and that. And of course, Bing, which is Microsoft's implementation of GPT. And then there's a few others out there like Claude. And, uh, and, and there's, there's a number of them. You're going to see more and more of these models. And basically what they are are large AI or deep learning models that use a specific approach and essentially try to predict what comes next, <laughs> in essence. It's a bit like sort of word prediction in that regard, but done on an absolutely cracker scale. Like, uh, you know, instead of just predicting what's the next letter when you're typing on your phone to get a word or what word are you trying to do by looking at the what you've typed before and some other you know, samples. This uses enormous amounts of data, you know, 10% of the sort of data on the internet. And as a result, can predict a great deal, uh, not just the next word, but like the next paragraph and so on. And it does so in a kind of statistical manner and sort of based on probabilities. But what's really interesting is that as a result of this, it has this kind of emergent property of appearing quite intelligent, although it's not intelligent as such. And does a number of interesting things like it can create um, useful outputs. So you can use it in a number of different places, but in healthcare, it's very good at sort of summarizing, taking a large amount of what we call unstructured data and you know, predicting what a summary might look like. So, you know, that could be a journal article as a good example, as you can take a journal article, put it in there and just say, please summarize this and it will provide a pithier sample, you know, summary, or it can extract certain features from that as well. You can give it bullet points and it can expand it as well, you know, to fill it out and it can transform it between different languages as such, but not just languages, but styles and with different constraints. So you can take a letter from the hospital and say, translate this into French and it will translate it into French, or you can say, translate it into a style that would be understood by a person with a lower reading age or a medical background or no medical background. So, you know, there's a lot of different things it can do, but also can do some inference as well. So, so there's lots, lots in there. And then when I spoke to Dr. Gandalf about this, and you're right, he does great work. He wanted an opportunity to sort of sit down and log into ChatGPT and then have a play with it, basically. And, and it's important to say that what I was doing was demonstrating what it could do. I wasn't saying, go away and do this right now. We'll maybe come on to the sort of reasons. It's not going to be very careful about how you use this, but it's an interesting way of looking at what the future might look like. So yeah, we, we, we covered a few things in there. Yeah, and um, I mean, one example I used it for was a letter from a haematology consultant. And, and haematologists can sometimes seem like they're in their own little world of acronyms. You know, for a malignancy, they, they might talk about achieving MRD, having a sibling PBSCT, having a DI, a DLI, sorry. Uh, you know, and actually you could Google all those terms individually, but 
I absolutely agree. You've got to be careful when you're, you're pasting and using it. You've got to completely remove any anything identifiable. But just taking a few phrases or, or mm. lines, pasting them in, you can get a simple explanation instantly and in a way that is, I think, very useful for, for a GP and a patient. Well, I absolutely agree. And of course, large language models, the impressive thing is that um, it's the breadth of capabilities that comes with this as well. You know, I've previously said that artificial intelligence is a great kit bag of tools, like individual tools that do one thing, one narrow thing, typically very, very well. You have to use the right tool for the right job. Large language models have kind of broken that paradigm a bit by actually providing a really pretty good tool for lots and lots of different jobs. And so you're right, it simplifies this. You could like Google this, Google that, Google the next thing and so on. Or you can just drop it into a lot, something like GPT, assuming there's no identifiable data in this and, and say, you know, translate this to, you know, explaining any complicated medical terms. Or you could say, translate it as if I'm eight years old or, you know, into Urdu or, or whatever it is. And um, again, there are some limitations to that, but but it can really help. And in fact, um, I've taken to using chat GPT, explaining different topics, medical and otherwise. And you start with, I found out it's called uh, ELI5 or explain like I'm five. So you take a complex topic and say, right, see this topic, explain it like I'm five. And then you get a very simplified uh, thing and say, all right, okay, explain it like I'm 10, explain it like I'm 15. And you kind of crank it up until you get to the point at which you're you're ready. And I've done that a few times, actually, in anger, you know, to understand complex subjects, because I'll read something, won't understand it, go away, and then sort of take steps towards it, and then come back to the original article. So yeah, it's been very helpful there. While I was looking at the Dr. Gandalf video, there was a link, as YouTube will do, it'll show you other videos. And there was a fascinating video um, from a guy called Bob Wachter, who's the director of medicine in the University of California. He's he's written a, a really interesting book on um, healthcare and technology called The Digital Doctor. And he had a really interesting debate with a few other doctors and professors about how ChatGPT might transform the world of healthcare and education. And I guess two big points that struck me echo what you were just saying, really, that we now have an incredible expertise in language processing, or even you might call it a genius, and the reflection back in different styles and fluency and simplicity is just awesome. But when it comes to information and knowledge processing, if you like, it's, it's much less of an expert. It can be a bit of a novice. So we've got to be, take a lot of care about that. That's one thing. And then just in terms of our educational development, having this fingertip access to information will mean in the future probably that students and doctors won't have to memorize lots of facts, but the concepts around the facts will be absolutely key to, to handle the information and, and sort of sense check things. So, so I know I've, <laughs> I've covered a lot of ground there, but yeah, I just think those key aspects are vital really. Yeah, I think if anyone's, no, you're absolutely right. And uh, Bob Vactor wrote uh, the Vactor report in the NHS as well about, which is in part behind some of the exemplar sites building digital health records, you know, the digitalization of healthcare. So he's had his involvement with the NHS too. And you're right, that's an excellent uh, recommendation. Another recommendation that I would give, it's not out in the UK yet, well, you can get it online as an ebook, is the AI revolution in medicine, GPT-4 and beyond. And I, I can share a link with you. I'm sure you can share mm -hmm. it with your listeners. That was an easy read as well. And it's wonderful. It sort of takes you through the, the author had access to GPT-4 um, before it was released, and so they explored uh, healthcare use cases. So that's really interesting. But but coming back to your your point about what skills we have going forward, the closest I can get to it would be it's a little bit like how we all integrate search engines into how we work these days. You know, I think everyone's got a level of competence about how to 
where to look for things, how to ask the question. You know, I think everyone's got a lot better and sort of not saying, please, Mr. Google, can you find this for me? You know, I think everyone's ability to sort of turn it into a very short query has got much better. And then we know how to appraise the information that comes out of it. And we, we work with our patients to help them do that, you know, often as well. Exactly the same is going to happen out of this. This is a kind of knowledge and synthesis tool as well. And when it gets partnered up with search and other tools, and we might come on to that later on, I think it's going to be tremendously powerful. So you're going to need to have a background understanding of medical concepts if you're a doctor in the future. You're going to have to have an understanding of how these technologies work and how to formulate these questions and uh, you know become a capable user of these technologies as well. But it's actually, I suppose, going backwards again and teaching people about thinking and, you know, logic and deduction and inference and, and so on. Things that kind of get pounded out a bit if you just get people stuck on rote learning. You know, it's actually a more enjoyable thing, I think. So having it alongside and being able to explore is really nice. And I suppose just in a completely non-medical setting, one thing I, I love using it for is if you if you go to the kitchen and you see, you know, in the fridge and you see, well, I've got some mm. chicken breast fillets and some spinach and some tomatoes and an onion, you can ask you know, for a, a recipe, in, including those things, and, and you'll get a lovely recipe. Whereas, you know, in the old days, we'd just be looking up recipes and then going out and trying to find the ingredients. Oh, yes. Yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of different variations on that as well. And it can get quite complicated, too. I mean, I heard someone talking about like seasonal cocktail cabinet recommendations for if you're interested in that kind of thing, you know, it's the Cinco de Mayo, it's the 5th of May, give me a Mexican themed cocktail based on listing what you've got in there and then, you know, your spice rack and, and, and things like that. So yeah, there's the Again, it goes, it speaks to the fact that all they've done, <laughs> and this is all, it was an enormous effort and costly, but they've built a model that knows how to predict what comes next using language. And look how much we can achieve with the written word. This is where the power comes from. And there's a lot of kind of existential and philosophical questions that come off the back of that. But either way, you can sort of back up and say, well, right now, you know, it's interesting to to see how it helps. And it can it can also help, I think, act as a sort of an assistant, as in I've seen a patient, uh, you know, I've come up with my own thinking. Is there anything that I've missed? It's the, these kind of things, you know, used correctly, you could put them in the background. You know, what, what other things should I be collecting? What red flags have I not excluded? Might be another way into doing that. Yes, it's the lateral thinking and, and the, the bullet points that we might not think of. I wanted to think about some of the potential problems with this. Now, I, I think almost like a confidence trickster, chat GPT will sometimes sound completely plausible uh, while telling you something that's completely wrong. So, mm. so we almost have to constantly question, you know, how much of the information is, is actually right. What, what proportion of, of information do you think it's getting wrong? It was actually remarkably hard to sort of get a, a figure on this. And I suppose it's hard. It's, that's not because I think people are being shifty. Uh, it's just how confident it will be and how accurate it will be will depend on an enormous number of factors, in particular how you ask the question. But Open uh, OpenAI, the company that built ChatGPT and all the GPT models, and brought out their own figures, and they, they quoted and saying, well, GPT-4 is 40% better than the previous models. And the question is, well, then what the hell was the previous model like? It looks like when they run it across a test set that about 20% of times it was used, there was a degree of hallucination in there or, or, or an error that could look plausible. Now, that sounds like a high amount. It was difficult for me to understand whether is that like a like it's all wrong or is there just one error in it or, or, or whatever. And it's running on a test set that maybe has a lot of different things in there, too. But, but it just indicates that there is a sort of error level and you can control it by carefully crafting how you ask the questions by double checking things and levering is you can actually giving it prompts, giving it what was called time to think, as in do something for me and then double check it. It will improve the outcomes too. So 
you know, it's going to it's going to happen reasonably often. Um, a best way to try and establish it for yourself is to ask it some medical questions about which you have a really good understanding and then see how it gets on. And you'll get you, you'll you'll see what we mean here is that it can seem very plausible. And of course, it's doing so because it's not searching the Internet like these models without extra tooling aren't searching the Internet. It's just making reference to this sort of training material within which maybe something close to the answer. But if the answer isn't there and you've um, set one of its settings, which is called temperature, which is about how creative it is, it can pick not the most likely thing, but something slightly less likely. And within that, that, then, that can then amplify things. I think hallucination is probably a less useful phrase. For medics, confabulation is a much better phrase. And if you can imagine some of your unfortunate patients who've uh, maybe spent too much time drinking alcohol over their life and fill in the gaps very plausibly so, I think that's a better way of doing it. But they haven't gone with confabulation. Um, they've gone with hallucination. And I guess we, we should also remember that humans can be wrong and biased. So it, I guess we should have a partnership approach. I was listening to a podcast yesterday about self-driving cars in San Francisco and how the expectation is that they have to be completely perfect. And of course, they won't be. There will be occasional accidents and stuff, but they'll probably still be way better or safer than humans. So it's interesting mm -hmm. to think about how, how perfect we're going to expect robots yes. and AI to be. I, I agree. And that's uh, the, 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 the obvious place to look at that is when you look at healthcare delivered on a global perspective. And so despite the problems that we're having here in the UK right now, we've still got pretty good access to healthcare. And there are very large portions of the world where access to healthcare is essentially non-existent um, or extremely difficult to get hold of in a timely fashion. So then the question is, well, should someone use GPT or a model like it to give medical advice. And of course, the advice here would be no, not at the moment. It's not ready for it. There's a lot of different reasons for it. But then if you put a thought experiment and say, well, let's say, for example, you're not a doctor and you're on a desert island and the only link you have with the outside world is a link to GPT and something medical happens and you aren't a doctor at this point, you don't have any medical knowledge. What are you going to do? Are you going to use this knowing that some of it might be incorrect or are you going to not use it at all? and rely on what you got around. And of course, I think in that situation, you might be more tempted to actually ask this question. Now, that's a thought experiment, but around the world, people are pressed with this all the time. And I think that's a big challenge for us going forward. People will already use the internet where they maybe have it, but actually a large language model could serve questions from people in sub-Saharan Africa or you know, India or other areas and actually give good enough advice but then how are they going to work out if there's any problems? I don't know. I think we've got some interesting challenges ahead of us. But we always have to bear in mind that what may be unacceptable for us may be perfectly acceptable for someone else. Yeah. Just wanted to think a little about how to get the best results out of some of these tools. I mean, one of the things I've, I've noticed is that the prompts we use are really pretty important in terms of getting a, a decent response. I know you're all over this at the moment. I found a website called greataiprompts.com. <laughs> um, but, but it, it, you know, it was fascinating because, you know, in terms of making you think differently, you know, ask ChatGPT, I want you to act as a a motivational coach or a stand-up comedian or a personal assistant, or, or specifically to create a 250-word summary of this text in lay language or create a, a summary of this report that a, a grade three student could understand. Mm. What approach do you take with prompts? Yeah, so yeah, prompts are, for those listening, prompts are basically the information that you pass to the model. And in a chat interface, it's like in a chatbot type setup, but you know, you can do it other ways. And essentially, it's a sort of plain language instruction to the model to do something. And so sometimes you might just say, you know, 
I've got some chicken breast and spinach in the fridge. What do I do? But I suppose what you want to do is you want to learn this language. And it's just about learning in the same way that you might have done so with other technologies like Google search, you know, how to structure your questions, how to think about what question you want to ask and how to, uh, or what you want it to do and how to structure it as well. Now I could take a little bit of time. And in fact, um, I'm putting together a course on clinical prompt engineering right now that I'm hoping to be able to make available soon. So um, if people are interested enough this, you may be able to follow me. I'll try and keep you posted on that. Love to hear what people want to hear about it. The basics of it are very simple is that what you want to do is you want to, first of all, instruct the, in a prompt, you kind of construct it in pieces. And the first bit is you instruct the model what role you would like it to play. So um, in this case, you said, you know, I want to act as a motivational coach or a stand-up comedian or anything like that. But let's say we're using a clinical use case and we're asking it hypothetically to translate a complex radiology report into something for a patient. And again, this isn't you know, doable really just now, but let's just use a thought experiment. So, you know, you start out with you are, um, you know, an expert uh, radiology AI that is very capable at taking complex um, concepts and simplifying them for a lay user. So you, you, you sort of lay that out and you can also put some constraints in there. It's like, you know, like if there's any um, complex medical terms that you will expand them and, uh, and the like. And then you will explain, well, what you're going to do is like, or you ask what to use is I'm going to provide you with a radiology report and I want you to output this as a letter or a summary to a patient. So you start with what role you want it to play, what you want it to do and what you are going to provide it with. Okay. You can then sort of put extra things like I want to make sure that it's less than 300 words. I want it to be in X language. I want it to be in the style of Shakespeare, whatever, you know, the constraints in there. Pick out anything that, you know, also things like pick out any further actions that need to happen or anything like that. What you can then say is you say, once you've done this, I want you to check it against the original report and make sure that there is nothing, you know, in there that shouldn't be in there, that it's entirely consistent. And um, if you want to, you can also provide some examples. And that's called what we talked about is what's called zero shot prompting. But you can do few shot prompting where you give it examples. So you can say, I'm going to give you an example of a report and what a summary should look like. And the more you give of those, the better it will get. And then you finish with, and here is the report, and then enter that, and it should provide it that way. So again, you're being very clear about what role it's going to play, what you expect it to do with any constraints, what you're going to provide it for, any examples that you might have, and then you provide this additional context, you know, the, the material that has to work with. And um, in future, you'll be able to say, and also make sure that it complies with this entire guideline or anything like that. You know, we may not have time to talk about that today, but the use of tools and memory and so on and is, is a really big thing these days. So, so it's that kind of thing. And just go in there, try it, see what report comes out, and then say, oh, I don't like this. You can update it. This iterative process of practicing makes a big difference. And oddly enough, you can also ask the large language model to help you create a prompt to submit as well so you can say can you create a brilliant you know you are you are an expert prompt creating ai i'm going to describe something that i want you to do you're going to give me a brilliant prompt and what i want you to do is and then you just describe what you want to do even that can be a starter for tim <laughs> yeah so so essentially if you ask it to act as an expert pharmacist if it's giving drug instructions it will be likely to give you a better result than if you just say give drug tapering instructions. If, if you are more detailed about the question, you'll get a better answer. 
yeah, the more detail you can provide, the better answer, broadly speaking. And remember, it's um, it's answering in that kind of style. It's predicting what kind of answer would be more consistent within the constraints that you've given it as well. And actually, you've made an interesting point, isn't it? That demo that I gave with uh, Dr. Gandalf, we were talking about drug weaning, you know, uh, taking a person, let's say they're on antidepressants, so you want to sort of step them down or something like that. Large language models actually aren't terribly good at maths, <laughs> oddly enough. So that's an area that they can fall down. Now, what's being done, they're providing tools. And so a large language model, when provided with an instruction that requires maths, new versions of the technology give it extra tools. So you can say, calculate this number. And the large language model will say, to answer this, I would need a calculator. I have access to a calculator. I will pass this to a calculator, see what the results are, and then include that in the outcome. So going forward, we'll probably get more and more tools. And then for the example here, I would say, well, you'd want the large language model to have a mathematical tool and then possibly access to the BNF and then also guidelines on weaning, um, you know, which you could search from the internet or you could provide it explicitly. I think that's where we're likely to go next with the large language model being the kind of the foundation brain underneath it. <laughs> it's quite it's quite interesting that um, I guess ChatGPT is such an expert in language, but not quite so good in the maths. You know, it sounds like some uh, some other students. I just wanted to ask Keith: Is there anything that would worry you about how this might be used by patients in the future, and 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 possibly any potential harms around it? Yeah, I think um, I'll come back to the same things I said before about Google. You know. Um, what harms might come to your patients um, or the people they care for if they rely solely on looking on the internet, um, you know, using a search engine, you know, and you can see we've all got examples of where patients have got the wrong end of the stick or the wrong information or become very anxious about something on the basis of that. And large language models can potentially do the same, particularly because they're not really designed to be search tools. They can give what look like search answers, but they're not search tools. They just predict what's the best answer to this. So, your patients may formulate a question in a way that is difficult for it to answer or makes it more likely to give an ambiguous or hallucinatory answer. But it comes with often a great degree of kind of authority in there as well. Actually, some of the well-trained models will be very, you know, they have guidance. So if you say, you know, should I change my dose of whatever, quite often they'll say, actually, I'm not a doctor. You need to speak to a doctor about this. And they won't even allow you to proceed. There are ways around that. But the, um, these models are often trained to be a wee bit more careful there. It's, it's fascinating to think about the future and I guess how how these tools might become integrated with our GP systems, for example, or our own data, mm. you know, our PCs and our phones and stuff. And yeah, it'll come very quickly, won't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you're right. I think it will sort of integrate into itself into our lives very, very quickly indeed. I think um, I say if you have an opportunity to speak to your patients about this, I think it would be very helpful to do two things. Number one, let them understand that it's not a doctor. Number two, that it actually can come up with things that are incorrect and you won't be able to tell very easily. It doesn't have any access to your records, so it might tell you something that's completely correct, but not correct for your particular case because it doesn't know this information. But re the really, the really important bit that's easy to slip up on, and you mentioned it earlier on, is that when you use something like ChatGPT or Bard, the data that you provide is being sent to out of the country. It's being sent to the US principally, and also it's going to be used to train other models. So you could be giving away access to your information if you provided your own medical data, you know, your own historical data too. Patients may not be aware of this. They may they may actually not care, but it's important that they are aware of this too. But I think you're right. Like we're all we're all learning what these tools can do, how to use them. 
and very very quickly we get very used to them just being just there and not terribly impressed anymore i mean i still remember napster was a good example of people with a certain age napster's the one but but even spotify i remember when spotify launched i was like crikey this doesn't seem right you know i can get access to all this stuff it's fine it, it, it no it's amazing but now I'm just like, yeah, I just expect Spotify to be there, you know. And if it's not there, I get irritated. Yeah. I'm not marveling at it every day. And, and these incredible technologies um, will very rapidly become mundane. In fact, if they get mundane, we're probably doing the right thing because we've gotten to a point where we can rely on them more. And that's going to take some work. But speaking to you today and talking about prompts and GPT, I encourage everyone to play around with it. If only just to become aware of what the future might look like and the language you might need to use. You know, Step with great care when using this in your actual practice for any number of different reasons. But to understand what's coming down the line, I think, yeah, get out there and have a go. I really do like the idea of explaining complicated things as if I were five years old. I think increasingly that's the level I want to work at. But more seriously, the language processing ability of ChatGPT is absolutely fantastic. And I do encourage everyone to try out some of the ideas we've been discussing today. Try summarising complex documents or use some of the new prompts to see how AI can start to think for you and make your life easier. And do let us know if you come up with some good ideas. I've put the links to all the videos, books, and also contact details for Keith in the episode notes. Comments are always welcome. Snug are on Twitter, at SNUsersGroup, and so is Keith, at Keith Grimes. And you can also email us via the Snug website. As I record this, there is still time to register for the virtual Snug Members Day, which is on Wednesday, May the 24th. And there is, as usual, a fantastic list of topics in the plenaries and workshops, covering progress towards a single medication record, lots of tips and reports from the reprovisioning programme team on the progress as we migrate all Scottish practices to vision. There are updates from Medlink, Docman, Right Decision, as well as several more products to give you ideas on what the future looks like for GPIT in Scotland. You can register via the Snug website, and also you can see a link to this in the episode notes. Okay, thank you for joining us, and I do hope you learned something new. And it leaves us all, I think, with some big questions for the years ahead. I'm going to leave the last word to who else but Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Bye-bye. Commander, you have devoted your life to the study of cybernetics in general. Yes. And Commander Data in particular. Yes. And now you propose to dismantle him. So that I can learn from it and construct more. How many more? As many as are needed. Hundreds, thousands if necessary. A single data is a curiosity. A wonder even, but thousands of datas. Isn't that becoming a race? And won't we be judged by how we treat that race? Now tell me, Commander, what is Data? I don't understand. What is he? A machine. Is he? Are you sure? Yes. You see, he's met two of your three criteria for sentience, so what if he meets the third? Consciousness in even the smallest degree. What is he then? I don't know. Do you? Do you? Well, that's the question you have to answer. <laughs>